welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We're going to look at the final words of Luke chapter 23 today. And uh, we're going to approach the end of this amazing gospel. Uh, We have just one long chapter left after this, chapter 24, that we will finish, uh, likely right at the end of this year. Uh, Yet there remain several significant events of Christ's life in this gospel. We're near the end, but not nearly exhausted in what is left. Uh, We'll study the resurrection next week. That same day, on another message, we'll talk about his appearance on the road to Emmaus. Thereafter, Jesus makes several other appearances, and then he will give the great commission to his disciples, followed then ultimately by his ascension into heaven. Uh, There are many crucial events remaining, so we're going to have a big finish this year, a good big finish The end of chapter 23 also contains a very important passage for us, uh, incredibly important, the burial of Christ's body. It it is one of the most crucial elements of the Christian faith. Uh, It's so important that the burial appears in all four Gospels, and uh, it is repeatedly under attack, repeatedly under attack. Uh, There remain many skeptics today. It's been suggested the women on Sunday morning visited the wrong gravesite. They found a gravesite unused that was empty because they just, just arrived at the wrong place. That's going to be debunked in this passage. Uh, it's been claimed that Jesus' body was moved as a trick, a trick either by bandits or a trick by the disciples themselves. Uh, some over the centuries have declared that Jesus never really died, didn't actually die, but slipped in into a coma, slipped into a coma from shock, and uh, by Sunday morning, the therapeutic aroma of the spices and the myrrh and the aloes uh, revived him again. Uh, not possible to reconcile with what we see in Scripture, not, not even credible at all. And any scenario that claims that Jesus did not physically die uh, it, that's a deal breaker for salvation. It's a complete deal breaker. You can't be saved from your sins if Jesus did not die. That's because Scripture is clear. The wages of our sin is death. It is death. Scripture says that sin demands death, demands separation from God and death. So to pay our sin debt entirely, to get the job done, uh, Jesus not only had to suffer, Jesus had to die. And Jesus, if he did not die, then he was not truly raised. Then Scripture would conclude that we are still condemned. Uh, Appreciating this, of course, Satan has his publicity department working overtime. Working overtime, casting doubt on the death and burial of Christ. That ought to tell us something. That people are uh, manufacturing all kinds of other things. illusions and scenarios, it means that Satan, he knows that Jesus' burial 
and, and then resurrection, his death, burial, resurrection. He knows they're essential. They are essential. Actually, we learned this last Wednesday night in, uh, in our study group, study and prayer time on Wednesday evenings, Matthew was sharing 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 13. Brings it very clear here. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, writes Paul, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For indeed, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless you are still in your sins. Now, Scripture is crystal clear that uh, Christ uh, suffered for our sins, that He died, that He was buried, and that He was raised again to new life and ascended into heaven. If we reject Jesus' death and burial, uh, if we reject that, then it's not a resurrection. It's just a resuscitation. And that doesn't fit. Uh, All that offers, and and many follow Jesus today in this way, all that that offers is a moral gospel. A moral gospel that says that Jesus, as, as did many other religious sages, Gandhi and others, he just taught us principles to live by. That's the moral gospel. That he just came, he lived, and uh, he taught us, you know, how to love and how to be just nice people. That's an insufficient gospel. Jesus wouldn't have to die to teach us to be nice. He died to bear our sins and our guilt on the cross, and then he rose again. Uh, Paul the Apostle had noticed, had seen, had been informed that, that this error, that Christ had not died uh, or had not been raised, had infiltrated the Corinthian church, and he, he just flushes it straight down the toilet. That won't fly. So early congregations of believers They weren't oblivious to this error. It isn't something that never affected them. In fact, it had to be be addressed. It's alive today in many congregations, including the Unitarian Church. False church that teaches Jesus was just a good role model. Questioning Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it's so damning, especially the burial. Early Christians codified the following... In the Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead on the third day, he rose again. And later in, in 385 AD, it was again included in, in the Nicene Creed, which said he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. If you're going to follow the Scriptures, there's no, there's no end around on this. The death and burial of Christ. So I'd like you to recognize as I begin reading in verse 50, the burial of Jesus, it's cemented in all four Gospels because it's, it's far greater than a footnote. It's not just a footnote. The burial scene verifies that Jesus physically died for sins. uh, And that will forever remain an essential element of the Christian faith. 
In verse 50, we are also introduced to a new character, Joseph of Arimathea. As Luke writes, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man of, from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth, and he laid Jesus in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee, who had come with Jesus out of Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath day, uh, the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Uh, we get a lot of information from the four Gospels, really paints in this scene uh, really well. You know, Joseph, he is Joseph of Arimathea, he arrives just in time, just in time, and it is no coincidence. God had been working in his heart for a while for John Chapter 19, verse 38, reveals that Joseph was previously a a secret disciple of Jesus. Uh, Why did Joseph keep his loyalty to Jesus a secret? Well, probably for a similar reason to why you don't put a campaign sign in your yard, right? Retaliation. Retaliation. He feared retaliation. And it's because Joseph was regarded... Mark 15, verse 43 tells us he was a prominent member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That is the council. He was a prominent member. Uh, Since this council was willing to crucify the Christ, there's little doubt that Joseph surely would have experienced a retribution if they knew that he was following Jesus. But when push comes to shove, push ultimately came to shove, uh, our passage reveals that that Joseph was a good and a righteous, Mark tells us as well, a courageous man, a courageous man to consent, uh, who did not consent. He was unwilling to consent to their plan. Nathan was teaching this morning in Bible Life Group, which meets at 9.15, about persecution that is coming. And I address this a little bit in, in the report, speaking of the Lord's Day, uh, where we meet and we congregate and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ and where around the country now there are beginning to be prohibitions of Christians wor- worshiping uh, together. And it is disheartening how people are beginning to obey man and not God. And he he outlines some of the things that we might see coming. But folks, this this is going to impact us. Whether or not people will gather together and worship the Christ is going to be affected. And it's going to come uh, not in the distant future, but very, very soon. Here we see that Joseph of Arimathea had to come out from the group that he was in. And, and gather with another group of disciples who were going to care for Christ and his body. All right? And he had to be courageous. There came a point where he had to stand courageously, and that was God working through him. And he would say, Yet not I, but Christ in me. 
and uh, he was a very courageous man, uh, and he's, he is, uh, he's included here in this passage. What an amazing passage in what he does, what he does. Um, at some point, he probably parted ways with the council. I, I don't know if it was when they decided to uh, pay Judas to betray Jesus or whether it was... Um, when they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane or began to persecute him. It may have been early in the morning when the Sanhedrin, which consisted of 70 men, went before Pilate to accuse Jesus. We don't know exactly when, but we do know that Joseph was not part of the group that accused Jesus before Pilate. At some point, I think he probably resigned. Uh, that might have been the same with Nicodemus, who will be introduced uh, two in just a little bit. Uh, he will appear in this story in just a few minutes. But Mark 15 assures that Joseph was previously a prominent member of the council. A prominent member of the council. That means he, he held influence. He was a player. Uh, and, and, and he was also a very wealthy man. He's described as rich. Yet in God's timing... In God's timing, he became courageous for Christ. Well, why do I say it was in, in God's time? Well, it's because God had to secure a place for the body of his son. Think about this. Think about this as, as we continue here just the next few minutes. Please listen closely. In God's timing, Joseph became courageous for Christ. The Bible does not record, folks, a sequence of random accidental events. It's not coincidental events. Uh, the Bible records God sovereignly working through human hearts to accomplish His plan of redemption. Yet not I, but Christ through me. All glory is given to the Lord. And God is still doing this today. Uh, notice the facts surrounding this timeline. Very interesting here. Jesus' body is dead and it's hanging on a cross. Normally, as an example, after crucifixion, the outlaws were left on the cross for a few days to be an example to others. Uh, Rome would do that. And then afterward, the bodies were cast into a stank pit. The prophet Isaiah wrote of, of the Messiah. This now is over seven centuries before Christ. Saying he was cut off out of the land of the living and his grave was assigned with wicked men. So, so the pit is where Jesus' body was to be disposed of after a few days along with all the other criminals that had been there before and the ones that hung next to him uh, on his left and on his right. That is where he was to be disposed of. But then, well, by time, space, and chance, random chance, the Sanhedrin requested that Pilate send his soldiers and, and break the legs of the three men so that they would die quickly. Uh, they wouldn't be able to hold up their weight anymore uh, on their feet that would, were probably on a stump out from the cross as they were nailed down. They could carry their own weight, but if you would shatter the legs, they would have to hang 
and they would asphyxiate quickly. They would suffocate and expire quickly. And the Sanhedrin called for this. This was their act by chance. And John 19 says that this regard or this request, excuse me, this request was made in regard to the high Sabbath. Sabbath was about to begin. This was the Passover Sabbath. It was during a festival because it was special to them and actually because the law required it. The religious council wanted the bodies down quickly. They wanted them down right now before sundown. We are approaching sundown at this time in the, in the narrative. At the same time, Joseph of Arimathea gathers courage. Mark 15, verse 43 says that he asked Pilate permission to take Jesus' body. So they're wanting the body down. Joseph of Arimathea wants to take the body, and he suddenly becomes courageous. You know, first off, uh, criminals like this that were hung on a cross were not generally granted dignified burials. Weren't generally granted that. Their grave was assigned with the wicked men. But Joseph, a man of prominence, a man of influence, a man of money, he was rich. Uh, He just happened to have a brand new, unused tomb hewn out of the rock. Boy, that was lucky. And he is the one, he is the same one then who suddenly gathers boldness in the threat of fierce opposition, by the way, the Sanhedrin. Think about all these developments at this time. Think about this. And, and, and about how out of pure luck, Isaiah prophesied this about Jesus seven centuries earlier. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Folks, there is no way that all of these events could have occurred randomly. God the Father and God the Son didn't get just really lucky when all the stars were in alignment on this particular Passover right before the sun went down. And God did not you know, simply reveal to Isaiah over 700 years earlier, the prophet, uh, what God saw, what he foresaw will happen some point 700 years in the future. Are you beginning to bend your mind around this? Seriously. To bend your mind around what God has achieved at this moment in time. Scripture does not record random events that occurred throughout history. Genesis to Revelation are not random events that are just recorded in history. God didn't just have good timing. You know, as he as he told Isaiah to write. He didn't just look forward and say, you know, I think there's a good time here, about the year A.D. 30, 31, right in there. I think maybe I can fit it in. Maybe if everything else, because if God isn't in control, he's just got to really find an opportune time, right? That's not what happened. Luke is recording what God had sovereignly orchestrated by his own power working through people. That is what God does. Yet not I, but Christ through me. Consider these verses. 
Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wishes. The king's heart would have been regarded by the people, he being the most powerful person in the land. So when it is written that his heart's in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord turns it wherever he wishes it, they'd be very clear to the people that even the greatest most powerful man in the land, is in the control of the Lord. Everybody else fell under the king. wasn't that there's just one king. It's every king and every person. In Ezra chapter 6, another, I guess, lucky episode of random chance, Ezra was ordained to rebuild God's temple, and after its completion, this is during the, the dedication ceremony now, We read that Israel observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Folks, God orchestrates human events by turning the human heart. Does that with unbelievers like Pharaoh, did it with the king of Assyria, did it with Nebuchadnezzar, he does it with us today. He does it with us today. It's how he achieves redemption, how he achieves spiritual regeneration by his Holy Spirit. It is a tragic misstep when people read scripture as just a recording or a sequence of of random accidents rather than consequences of a sovereign God who rules the universe. It's tragic because God ordains history. That's why they refer refer to it. You've heard it before. It's His story. It's history. It is God working through us. John MacArthur on this passage offers incredible insight on... uh, on how God sovereignly ordains the involvement of every actor here at Jesus' burial. The, the guards, the soldiers, the, um, the council, Pilate's response, that of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and the women, all at the proper time, all at the perfect time. God knits his story together. He knits it together. He's incredibly powerful, folks. We, we don't, we do not revere all of his power in the way that we should. We do not see him working through human events and our own hearts in the way that we should. He, he should receive greater worship and greater, um, greater adoration for us. With that said, I shouldn't worry about future human events. I really shouldn't. I shouldn't be in distress over what's going to happen next week or next month or next year because God is orchestrating history. But what should I be concerned about? This is where the rubber meets the road. I should be very concerned about whether or not God is working through me. Whether it is being demonstrated that I belong to Him. 
He's got the future handled, just as he had the past handled. God had the scene of the crucifixion handled. Everybody was in place as needed. And for the disciples of Jerusalem, they declared to God in Acts 4 verse 27, In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, speaking to God now, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God is in control of the past and of the future. We don't have to worry about that. Um, He assured through the prophet Isaiah, long ago, God had Jesus' burial handled. And in Mark 15, verse 43, it says that Joseph, who was put there for this reason, gathered up courage and he went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is a result of God working through Joseph to achieve his sovereign purpose. You know, the Sanhedrin was going to get wind of this. They were going to hear about this. They'd probably see when Joseph would take Jesus' body down from the cross. They probably would know whose grave it is. The new one that had just been hewn out by Joseph where Jesus' body is laid. They would know it's Joseph's grave. They would know where to ask Pilate to put a guard at the grave. I mean, Joseph is outed, all right? He's now outed. And um, he has to surrender his status, his reputation, his friends when he comes out, when he publicly associates, associates himself with Jesus. And, and this was God working through him. To achieve God's purposes. It was God working through Joseph to make him good and righteous and courageous. It is a work of God's grace that caused Joseph to be looking for the coming of the kingdom. That's what Joseph was watching for according to our passages. You think about that. I find myself more and more looking forward to the return of Christ. I look forward to Christ ruling on earth. I can't wait. I really can't wait. Is that me? No. It's Christ in me, looking for the kingdom, working through us. And and Joseph had all of these things. God was working through him. And his faith became evident by his actions. Faith becomes evident through actions. What did James say? Faith without works by itself is dead. Is dead. There, there's a, uh, there's a mis- misnomer that we need to clarify. And this is really important. It uh, is sometimes stated that with God's sovereignty, sometimes it's referred to as Calvinism. It's the principles of it. It is stated that God elects And therefore, we can just do what we want. We don't need to get up for church. We don't need to assemble with the saints. You know, we don't have to give a whole lot. You know, we're chosen. We belong to God. Uh, He's elected. There's really nothing that we can, 
you know, really do about that. So, therefore, we can just kind of enjoy this life however we want. doesn't matter what we do. Folks, you won't find that in the Bible. You wouldn't find that among the writings of John Calvin. What we do and how we respond in being good and righteous and courageous is the evidence he is walking, uh, working through us. The, the reason I love coming to church in the morning, I pray you do as well. The reason I love assembling with the saints, even when I come in tired, there's never a Sunday that I leave, that I'm just, I just don't rejoice in, in the wonderful people that I see. Uh, the reason that we sacrifice to what level we can is because God has us uh, in, his, in His hand, folks. That's the evidence of it. This whole idea that you know, the elect can just behave however they want. That can't be reconciled to any historic understanding of the church or the reformers themselves. The evidence that we give is, is in, our, in our response to God with Him working through us. So, folks, we've got to act courageously. We can't huddle in fear. We have to be courageous as Joseph was, because God is still today, still writing history. He's still writing it. We read about it back then and think about how wonderful that must have been in biblical times. Look how God was working through those people. Folks, He's doing it still today. Still today, God is working through us to accomplish His plan of redemption. How do I know that? How do I know? Because Jesus has not returned yet. God is still working. He is still building His church. At some point, we must step out and be manifest and be revealed with those who are good and righteous and courageous. We have to be revealed as that, willing to suffer embarrassment to be associated with Jesus and His church. We must be. That will be God working through us. Here's, here's the caveat. If we do not, we do not belong to Him. If we do not, we do not belong to Him. Let's not kid ourselves into accepting doctrine that isn't working through us. Alright? In verse 53, after receiving permission now from Pilate, Joseph, he took down Jesus' body and wrapped it in a linen cloth. And he laid him in a tomb and cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Now, Matthew 27, verse 60 assures that this was Joseph's own tomb, the one that he had. It was new. No one had ever used it, hewn out of the rock. Uh, we are told in another gospel that uh, along the way this day that Joseph had, had bought a new, a new cloth to put Jesus in, had bought it new, and wrap Jesus' body in it. And uh, that would have been a fine burial cloth, uh, resembling actually a sheet. In fact, I'd like to draw our attention to, uh, of the remainder of our time, to the care that was given to Jesus' body. As, as we finish up today, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe a burial cloth in the Greek singular. It calls it a sheet. 
John describes Jesus as being covered in linen wrappings, meaning the Greek plural. And this is historically interesting here. First, I'd like to show you the only existing... Can we throw that up, please? This is the only existing photo left from this event. I think it's a Polaroid. looks like the color is around a little bit. There, I think we've got... Well, that was Joseph on the left, Nicodemus over here on the right, women back here. I don't know who this guy is. But this would be a sheet that would be wrapped beginning at the feet, around the head, and then back down to the feet. And then it would encompass the entire body. Um, This would give us an idea of how Jesus would be wrapped. And, And this picture is a picture of a traditional Jewish burial right here that here's another traditional burial wrapping one more there's a fourth interesting um can you see how a single burial shroud might be described as wrappings in the plural especially considering there was a separate face face cloth that they would normally put around the face, and the head. Um, what I want us to recognize is that a traditional Jewish burial, its wrappings, they don't resemble you know, Egyptian mummification. That, that, that's not what occurred. Uh, Jesus wasn't wrapped like a mummy. That's, that's not how uh, ancient Jews buried people. Uh, they wrapped them in sheets. They would place a cloth, an additional cloth, on the face. Most of you have probably heard of this, the Shroud of Turin. You read about that? Uh, This shroud is a singular burial cloth that is twice the length of a man, and uh, a man who was wrapped foot to head around the entire body. I showed you this a few years back, and I'm bringing it up again. Uh, just because it's very interesting and we can see how a body would have been buried in the ground. Uh, the Shroud of Turin has been many, for many centuries suspected as the actual burial cloth of Christ. It's a very, it has a very long history dating back into the early first few hundred years after Christ uh, rose and it has an exhaustively long history that you can exhaust yourself reading online if you so choose. That's not my point today. Uh, you, can, you can read about it. John MacArthur, he is adamant. He's firmly adamant that this Shroud of Turin is a fraud. Um, these are different x-rays. I think they have a positive, negative x-ray of this. And uh, John MacArthur says, the basis of his argument that I heard is that he insists that the Gospel of John describes Jesus' burial cloth in the plural, as wrappings. And he says, for that reason, that this is one sheet. And uh, that was the basis of the argument that I heard from him. Uh, He also correctly observes when Jesus raised Lazarus in John chapter 11, Lazarus came forth from the tomb, quote, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So John claims, John MacArthur claims that Lazarus is described in plural wrappings and Jesus is described as the same. Uh, he, he could be right. He could be right. I disagree. 
I disagree. Um, with Lazarus being poorer than Joseph of, of Arimathea, they may have used multiple cloths. Large sheets of cloth were surely expensive at that time, costly to acquire. Uh, or maybe, um, maybe these are the wrappings. Maybe these are it. Uh, we should note that the other three Gospels all describe Jesus as being wrapped in a singular cloth. All right? One of my professors at Dallas Seminary, J. Scott Harrell, great, great professor, isn't he? He's one of the really good ones. He's very accomplished in systematic theology. Uh, he, he's wise and well-respected. He was invited to join a team to physically examine this shroud of Turin firsthand. The team consisted, I believe, of physicians, there was archaeologists, historians, uh, 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 biologists. He was one of the theologians that was asked to make sure everything conformed with what the Bible teaches. And their conclusions, this is the team now, was that this shroud is consistent with what was known about first century Jewish burial cloths. The weave, the fabric, the textile, and the design were consistent with first century Judaism. The cloth appears to have originated from the region of Palestine and the injuries are consistent with those suffered by the Christ. Um, the image is a result of some kind of radiation source. This image left on the cloth that to this day scientists cannot explain how it got on the cloth. Now this, there may be recent developments in the last five years, but they still cannot explain because the image that is radiated on the cloth is from the inside of the wrapping. And there's no way that they can figure out yet of how an x-ray was done from the body out. You follow me? This is, this is just interesting stuff. And uh, they, they can't figure out how it got scorched on the cloth. The image may be explained by the divine power as Christ was resurrected from the dead that radiated out. Uh, we're going to study that next week. I don't know. I don't know whether it is or whether it isn't the burial cloth of Christ. Uh, I would say Dr. Harrell, he offered our class th his conviction, and that, that of the team, his conviction especially, saying the whole team concluded the evidence is very, very convincing. Very, very convincing. Not a fraud in their opinion. Who knows? Doesn't change our doctrine. Doesn't change our faith. I, I think it's, it's really amazing uh, stuff. I'm going to offer my own conviction from this passage. Luke says that Joseph took the body down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid Jesus in a tomb. The Gospel of John also records that another man, Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, probably a member of the Sanhedrin as well, he came to help Joseph with this. And in John 19, verse 39, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. In verse 55 of Luke, it says, The women who had come with Jesus out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb, and how his body was laid. See, they, they were there. They saw. They knew which tomb it was. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. 
You know, I wouldn't doubt that the women took some of this massive quantity that Nicodemus had brought with them, the 100 pounds, home with them over the Sabbath to prepare them for use on Jesus' body. Uh, Nicodemus bought them or brought them, and because of their time, it was very short. It was very short before sundown, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Uh, they didn't have a lot of time to work with this. So, it means it's getting dark on Friday. They didn't have a lot of time to work with Jesus' body to prepare it and get it in the ground. But they took Jesus' body and they prepared it with as much dignity as they could. Follow me? Why did they do that? Why did it? Because it's the body of our Lord and Savior? Actually, no. It says in Matthew, or excuse me, John 19, verse 40. They treated Jesus as was the burial custom of the Jews. They treated him as you, they would of other Jews. We know that Lazarus was wrapped and, and that his body was treated in this way for burial. Uh, we know as we look at the widow of Nain, at uh, Luke chapter 7, we studied that a couple of years ago. Uh, the body of the, her, her son, her only son, it was, uh, it was carried by... Oh, pallbearers, actually, who bore the son's body on, our translation says a coffin, but it was actually a decorative pallet or platform that they would carry him in these wrappings with usually flowers and other things piled on top they would carry to the burial site. Here's my conviction. You, you may d- disagree. Uh, that, that's, this isn't a doctrinal thing as much as information that we need to consider, whether it was Old Testament or New the expense involved with a body being properly prepared for burial is never portrayed as a waste of money or superfluous. In fact, when Mary was criticized for breaking the alabaster flask of perfume worth a year's wages, Jesus replied, let her alone. Why do you bother her? For she has done a good deed to me. She has done what she could She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. I realize Mary's adoration was inspired by Jesus restoring her brother Lazarus to life and restoring her brother uh, to her. He raised him from the dead. Yet Jesus says, She has done a good thing to me, having anointed my body for burial. I think the respect with which we treat a human body for burial is important to consider um, because Christians rightly proclaim that we are all, everyone is going to be raised again from the dead, every person's body. I also agree that God has no hindrance. If you have family members that were lost at war on a ship in a battle and other things, there's nothing to be concerned about. Um, God is going to put all of our bodies back together again, no matter how they were. Uh, Those things, though, are outside of our control. When a battleship is sunk and other things, those are outside our control. And I would suggest the dignity with which we treat the human body for burial reflects reflects something about what we believe concerning the resurrection. Follow me? Something that we believe about the future resurrection from the dead. That's really all I have to say about that. In verse 54... It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. 
So Jesus was laid in the ground at sunset on Friday. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed, followed Jesus, uh, Joseph and Nicodemus, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So the women knew precisely how and where the body was laid. So they didn't make a mistake Sunday morning, going to a wrong tomb at all. Verse 56 says they returned, it means return home and prepared the spices and perfumes. Because, because the time was short, I imagine they put a small amount of spices and, per, and mo, aloes and, and treatment to Jesus' body before burying it. Uh, and the women returned home with the rest that Nicodemus had brought, planning to return Sunday morning, planning to come back Sunday morning. This is Friday night. They'd have an occasion then to finish anointing him properly. Again, we see the, the care, the concern for the body. And they're going to return to find what? Empty grave. They're going to find an empty grave. Think about this as we close. How long did Jesus' body lay in the grave? In the tomb, in the sepulcher. Did I pronounce that right? Sepulcher. How long? Friday night, dark, until Sunday morning when the sun rose. Early morning, right at first light when actually the sun rose. It would be at most 36 hours, depending upon the tilt of the earth and when the sun came up and everything else. It was 36 hours or less that Christ was in the ground over, over a period of three separate days. But this is the one reason they returned so early on Sunday. They wanted to treat body, Jesus' body as they could uh, before he began to suffer the decay. But it won't work. King David said, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. All that's left for the women to do is rest for the Sabbath. Just as the commandment had said, they're going to show up. They're never going to have the opportunity. And early that Sunday morning, the sun is going to rise and shine. That's our passage next week. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we think about you working through us, the regeneration, the life that you've given us in Christ, we pray, Lord, that you will be glorified, that you'll be magnified, that the gospel will be preached, that people will believe uh, our testimony that your son died for our sins that he, and that he rose again, that there's an empty tomb. And that through that message, that you will redeem sinners. As Paul said, and as many would agree here, uh, among whom we're chief. Uh, and uh, Lord, uh, you, you have made redemption known. You have accomplished it. You have achieved it. You have orchestrated history that we might be here together right now, worshiping the greatness of your Son. Father, as we contemplate the resurrection next week, how powerful and mighty it is that you can raise the dead and that promise that every single one of us will be raised, whether we have trusted in Christ or not, whether we are to be glorified with him or damned, every person will be raised 
Lord, you will be judge. Father, we pray here right now that everyone here has trusted in Jesus as their Savior, that when you return, or if we were to die, when that day comes, when you resurrect the dead, that we would all be in your grace, that we would all be together again as we are right now, singing praises to your precious Son. Amen.